it's time to catalog minor catastrophes, tell our real life terrors, and manifest some mayhem. That's right. Let's crack open the anxiety encyclopedia. I'm Catherine McNally. I'm Lori McGill. And today we're going to, I'm going to copy you, or as inspired by you, we're going to keep things spooky for October. Especially in the, ooh, spooky. We're actually going to talk a little bit about ghosts. So you might have two questions. The first is, I have been on record as saying I don't believe in ghosts. So (laughs) am I really anxious about them? Well, I mean, I don't believe in like traditional ghosts. I do believe in like a spiritual realm. I believe there are malevolent spiritual forces. So I think they're like traditional ghosts. And I'm pretty skeptical of a lot of the like reporting around ghosts, right? But also remember that I'm highly susceptible to freaking myself out. Yeah. When you live alone, you can believe in a lot of things that you don't believe in at night. So your second question might be, how am I going to talk about ghosts in one podcast? (laughs) Pretty big, right? So uh, I wouldn't even know where to begin. So we're going to look at one story of one of the most notoriously haunted houses in America. We are going to look, let's talk about the Amityville Horror. Fun fact, I picked this topic. And I asked my dad if he'd seen the movie because he was like a horror movie buff. And he was like, yeah, and I actually did a deep dive like 30 years ago into whether or not it was a hoax. So a couple of these things are just things he remembered as well. I didn't know your dad was in horror movies. He used to watch every horror movie. He used to watch horror movies. All of the, he like desensitized himself a little bit. Now he's more selective, but he used to go to all the movies in theater when he was a kid, all the Friday the 13th, all the Nightmare on Elm Street, everything. So in your in my head, your dad is like squeaky clean, like no, <laughs> like just perfect. And not that this makes him not perfect. It makes him more complex. And I like it. <laughs> complex. He's a whole whole human being. Yeah. Uh yes. Big, big horror movie guy in his younger days. And still he like when my mom's out of town because she doesn't like them. So he'll watch yeah. when my mom's out of town because he doesn't sleep oh anyway. Gosh. So there you go. Uh so let's go all the way back to November 13th of 1974 at 3 a.m. Ronald DeFeo Jr., he's 31. No, he's not. He's 23 years old. I'm 31. He lives at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York, which is on Long Island. And he, at 3 o'clock in the morning, he takes a rifle and he kills his parents, Ronald Sr. and Louise, he kills his two brothers, Mark and John, and his two sisters, Allison and and Dawn, in their sleep. The siblings were 18, 13, 12, and 9. Yikes. Uh, Dawn was the oldest sibling. Um, And so then at 6, so then he goes to work. He slaughters his family. And then he still goes, I'm just saying, if I did all that, I'd be like, I'm taking the day off. Washes his clothes just washes himself disposes of his clothes goes to work at 6 30 that night he runs into a local bar and actually at first he tries to call the house several times and like doesn't get an answer he's getting frustrated the bar is really close to the house so he goes back to the house from the bar after trying to call and then he comes back to the bar he runs in he says you got to help me i think my mother and father are shot so he's freaked out pretending to be freaked out he grabs a group of people they all go back to the house one of them calls the police and when the police get there they search the house and they find all the victims lying face down in their beds with their arms up what's really interesting is the police will later say that uh 
they were not drugged. Okay. But they're all still in their beds. DeFeo says he yeah. gave them barbiturates. And that makes a lot more sense, right? Although, unfortunately, physical evidence does suggest that Louise DeFeo and her daughter Allison were actually awake at the time of their deaths. Um. The family had lived there since 1965. They've been in the house for almost 10 years. And so at the scene, Ronald is not yet a suspect. And he, in fact, suggests to the police that a mob hitman killed their family, like a specific one, like by name. So the police take him to the station for his own safety. But then at the station, his story is unsurprisingly inconsistent. And the next day, he admits to killing the family. They're actually able to alibi the hitman that he accused. Like, he was in another state, which is so weird to me that they're keeping tabs on a mob hit. They can, like, find an alibi of a mob hitman, but they can't stop him from being a a mob hitman. What's, What's happening there? So... So Ronald admits to it. He tells them where he tells them where he threw away his bloodstained clothes, where he threw away the rifle and the cartridges. So he confesses to the murder and he goes to trial and his attorney, William Weber, tuck that name into your brain. Okay. Come back to this guy. Okay. It's tucked. They go first for an insanity defense. Okay. And so part of that insanity defense is DeFeo claiming that voices caused him to commit the murders. This is important. Uh, He says, one place I saw, he said he heard the voices of his family plotting against him and he murdered them all. The insanity plea is unsuccessful and uh, it's a seven week trial, which is the longest trial in the region at the time. And he's convicted of murder and he's given six consecutive life sentences. So he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life as he should for slaughtering his entire family, including a bunch of children. So that was in November of 1974. 13 months later, the house only sits empty for 13 months. And then this family moves into the house. George, Kathleen, and their three children, Daniel, who is nine, Christopher, who is seven, and Missy, Melissa, who is five. And uh, this house, it's a big house. It's a five-bedroom, Dutch colonial style. It has a boathouse because it's on a canal. It has a pool. It has a gamble roof which i guess this is like an architectural feature that people care about i i do i know i'm you one know. of those people i know i saw your eyes light up when i said that mm-hmm. you were like wow and it was kind of a steal because of its recent history because the murder so they paid eighty thousand dollars for the house which sounds like less than it is too because it is 1975 the house was worth one hundred and ten thousand, and they paid 80 it's a pretty good deal i'm gonna send yeah. you a picture really quickly of the okay. house you might notice the distinctive, once it sends, you might notice the distinctive spooky eye windows at the top. It kind of looks like a, ja- a jack-o'-lantern. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But you can also see it's a large house. That's actually like the side of the house. The front of the house is off. You can see the doors, all the windows. There's a ton of windows in this house. It's a big house. It's not as in the middle of nowhere as some of the movies make it look, but it's kind of out in the country, right? So actually, George and Kathleen have only been married since July of this year, 1975. The three children are Kathy's from a previous marriage, but George insisted when they were adopt when they got married, he made a deal with their dad that he would legally adopt the kids and change their names from Quartino to Lutz. He didn't want, he wanted to like immediately. Uh, so they all have, have the been... last name Lutz. How long have they been married now? Like five or six months. 
but he adopted the kids when they got married i guess we don't there's no info on how long they were together before that not that long it sounds like okay well 20 red flag city over here. uh because i think she only been divorced from her first husband for george entered the picture about a year after she got divorced from her first husband and i'm okay. unclear how long they dated but the kids the age range is such that it can't have been that long basically okay so they and they moved into the house on december 19th Nope. December 18th, 1975, 28 days later on January 14th, 1976, they fled never to return, leaving all their possessions. They eventually had a mover who experienced no paranormal activity, pick up their stuff just for the record. So what chased them out of their dream home after only 28 days? So then in 1977, author Jay Anson releases a book called The Amityville Horror, A True Story. Within three years, he sold 7 million copies, and it was made into a blockbuster hit in 1979. So I, not a horror girl, watched this movie because I am devoted to my craft. How was Uh, it? It was not very good, actually. No? No. I tried to watch The Exorcist once, and I I could not. It was not very scary. They were going for a real slow burn, which I understand, and which makes sense with the story, but they didn't effectively create that atmosphere of dread. And James Brolin played George and he was kind of a stud in the 70s. At the beginning of the movie, he looks crazy by the end. But uh-huh. he had a real sinister air from moment one of the movie. I don't really think he was supposed to. Oh. But then the more I learned about George Lutz, the more I was like, maybe he was supposed to. So I also watched... Well, I'm going to come back to the other thing I watched before I move away from this in the movie, in the film, the babysitter gets locked in a closet by a ghost. And I just seem to recall that you have a babysitting story. And I was wondering if you were willing to share that with the internet. You bet. I live to tell this story. Yeah. I had a very short career babysitting because I hate kids and because I had awful experiences babysitting. The worst one was, um, there was this house in the middle of nowhere. The dad drove to pick me up, drove me back to their house through these like windy roads in this woods. And the night was, a there was two kids, a boy and a girl, and the, the girl had a friend over. And there was a lot of weird shit we did. Like, I feel like we were on the trampoline first in the dark and there was like, you could hear coyotes. Didn't love that vibe. Not a good, bad foreshadowing. And then they had a <laughs> an empty hot tub in like a it looks like a sunroom kind of deal. And they would like put their toys in it. And I'm like, what kind of what what is this? Where the, the parents are like, Yeah, we're not gonna use the jacuzzi at them play in it. What kind of rich are, person shit is they this? They're very expensive to fill and maintain. To maintain. So actually, it's I guess cheaper to have an empty hot tub than a full one. <laughs> Okay, that's fair. <laughs> so they were like, get in. And so I did. And they closed the lid and sat on it. And I was trapped in there. It, it wasn't there very long. Okay. But um, I'm definitely like a little claustrophobic. So that wasn't fun. Yeah, so that was me getting trapped. And it, the night ended with forks being thrown and cuts on the face. But that's a different... I didn't remember there was, I was like, did they chase you into the hot tub with forks? I couldn't remember exactly how the forks played into the story. The fork was, the fork was after because of popcorn. You know how it goes. You throw forks for popcorn. I do. Certainly. 
movie theaters. I'm banned from every movie theater in this city. Um, she brings her cutlery with her everywhere she goes. To throw it. <laughs> well, you can relate to the babysitter in this movie who got locked in the closet by a ghost like and then knocked on the door until her knuckles bled. And then the parents got home and let her out. So it's just in the movie. I don't know if that was in the book. I didn't have to make my knuckles bleed. Thank God. That's good. So thank you for your trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lutzes made like $300,000 from the book. And then I also watched a documentary called My Amityville Horror. And this was focused on Daniel Lutz, the oldest child. He was the main doing all the interviews and stuff, along with an investigative reporter who covered a lot of the story when they were little. He So some of what I'm talking about is going to come from that. So also recognizing that, I mean, everything I say about his family is biased through his view, but also I'm not accusing him of lying. But also I know that mm-hmm. like I didn't talk to every person in his family right so he was really not into george he really hated george speaking of making them change their name and i don't think that was unreasonable but uh he called the experience a quote unfortunate gift in my life he said it wasn't something he earned it wasn't something he achieved it wasn't something he wanted to be associated with but he has been the amityville guy for his whole life that's followed him around because there have been movies made about him like when he was in college people would call him by a bunch of different names because the kids have different names in all the movies separate so they oh. someone would just say like that's the amityville guy and they would you could be billy or matt whatever yikes it's clear whatever that his childhood whatever happened had a profound impact on him so uh they move into the house and what's interesting the very first inconsistency I'm going to point out is that the prologue of Anson's book said they moved in on December 18th and chapter one of the book. So probably like four or five pages later says December 23rd. So when did they move into the house? Hmm. Already I have questions. So here's what the book talks about. It tells the story of the Lutz moving into this house. It's been empty for 13 months. Something to note is that this is kind of creepy to me. They got most of the DeFeo's furniture thrown in for $400. So the house basically came furnished, but is that the furniture you want? Uh, I was watching the documentary with my dad. And so at one point the journalist goes, they got the house with the possessions. And I was like, oh yeah, the house came with the furniture. And my dad goes, that's what they thought, but that's not what they meant by possessions. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> when they're getting ready to move into the house, a friend of George's hears about the history of the house. Which, again, it's weird to call it history. It happened one year ago. Right. The recent murders. Like, <laughs> like the, you should have read this in the newspaper one yeah. year ago. And he says, you must, you have to have the house blessed by a priest. You've got to. And George said, I trusted this friend and he was really passionate about it. So I thought, okay, we'll do it. He was a... um he described himself as a non-practicing Methodist. Kathy was a non-practicing Catholic, but they had this priest. And so they went to get a priest to do it. And he came to the house. And so then a few years later, in October of 1979, there was a TV show that featured an anonymous interview with someone who said they were the priest, blessed the house. And here's what he said happened. I was blessing the sewing room. It was cold. It was really cold in there. I'm like, well, gee, this is peculiar because it was a lovely day out and it was winter. Yes, but it didn't account for that kind of coldness. I was also sprinkling holy water and I heard a rather deep voice behind me saying, get out. It seemed so directed toward me and I was really quite startled. I felt a slap at one point on the face. I felt somebody slap me and there was nobody there. So this turns out to be Father Ralph Pecorero. 
Uh, they called him Father Ray. We're going to keep, we're going to come back to Father Ray, but that's his accounting. So that's very first day. They're just moving in and he has this experience. Those are a lot of things in one go, my dude. You're right. Go big. He also said like going on from that point, he couldn't get it. They couldn't get in touch with him on the phone and he couldn't get in touch with them when they tried to call. It would just get static because he wanted to like tell them to stay out of the sewing room, I guess. Uh in the book, the priest who they call Father Mancuso for the priest and an enemy, he also, he develops a high fever and he gets blisters on his hands that look like the stigmata. Oh my God, of course. Of course. You have to add that in. Yeah. What's a haunting without a little stigmata? <laughs> George Lutz gave a 2005 interview to Jeff Ballinger. It was one of the last big interviews before his death. So I have a bunch of quotes from here. him too. He loved to talk. He gave a lot of interviews. See, this is, I'm very suspicious. Okay. He said, as Father Ray was leaving, he said, you know, I felt something really strange in that one upstairs bedroom. And he described the bedroom and we said what we were going to use is, that's what we were going to use as a sewing room. We weren't going to use it as a bedroom. He said, that's good. As long as no one sleeps in there, that's fine. And that's all he said. And he left, which frankly seems insane. He heard a ghost talk to him and got slapped, but his, he's like, just don't sleep in there and it'll be fine. You can make your quilts in there. Just don't right. sleep in there. The needles I'm sure will be fine, <laughs> but don't sleep in there. Oh no. Danny says on the first day as well, they went into the room the day they moved in and saw hundreds of flies, like four or 500 flies in, I believe that same sewing room. It's winter. There shouldn't be that many flies in there. He says oh. he, Kathy went downstairs to get something. He said he killed with a newspaper, probably like a hundred flies. He ran down to get his mom and tell her like, look, I killed all these flies. And they went upstairs and there were no dead flies. She said, where are the dead flies? One thing that wasn't very clear when he was talking about this is whether there were still a bunch of living flies or whether right. like all the flies were gone. It wasn't clear, but there were right. not like a bunch of dead flies on the ground. Okay. During their time in the house, they said they experienced a lot of paranormal events. Uh, a lot of them, and George emphasizes even that many of them, most of them were subtle. They were small, but it was like stacking up, compounding of weird things happening. They claimed it started to change people's temperaments. Mm that they were angry and depressed. Kathy said that the house made men violent and it made women feel like lackadaisical and peaceful and not want to leave the house. Like she didn't want to leave the house to go do her chores. But then other places it also said that she was depressed. So, I mean, that is, but the peaceful is at odds with that. So there's some- That just sounds like my normal state of being. I don't want to leave the house or do anything. Uh, a greenish black slime. Nope. <laughs> No. Apparently seeped from the walls and down the staircase. Blech. When they talked about windows spontaneously shattering, they said the image of a demon appeared in the fireplace, cash disappeared from safe hiding places, swarms of flies, and heavy doors suddenly coming off their hinges. So Kathy said at one point that the door blew off outward, like it blew off from inside. 250-pound door, front door, just throwing that out there. Jesus, are doors that much? And well, this is like, think of the house, like this. It's, a really, it's probably a big okay. wooden door. That did seem like a lot to me. So maybe that was a mistake, but. I just love that they're like, oh, the door flew off the hinges. Let's weigh this baby before we do anything else. I assume they sort of had an idea of what the, she didn't say the weight. I found the weight. So... <laughs> she was like, our 200. They're holding it. They're like, this is 250. The whole family is holding it, <laughs> all of them standing around it. 
there were cold spots in the house, which is really a ghostly greatest hit. That just sounds like an old house. Kathy would sometimes levitate. <laughs> I really wanted to follow up cold spots with the levitation with the straight face, and it did have the intended effect. So thank you. Casual levitation, you know. Little levitation. Little. It is funny that he's like, things are really subtle. And he's like, a lot of flies, cold spots. My wife would float above the bed at night. Or she once temporary, temporarily looked like a 90-year-old woman. Shut up. George said she would feel, of Kathy, she would feel someone come up behind her and embrace her. She would smell this perfume that was, forgive the expression, old lady perfume. She would feel embraced and it would be comforting. And that's not something that she'd ever gone through before. When she turned into an old woman, she didn't just age a little. She aged a lot. She turned into someone completely different physically that I had ever thought was possible. Her mother saw this too. Okay, wait, hold on. What if she's just been wearing makeup the whole time and then like she stopped and he's like, oh my God. She's like, no, I'm still 32. I just took off. I just put the Pond's cold cream on. I think that's a strong possibility. I do. I just think we need to investigate all possibilities. I think that's a really strong option that you bring up. So thank you. Mm-hmm. How did you know? That's already in the second half of my notes. George didn't know what a woman looked like without makeup as a possible explanation. <laughs> Sometimes in the middle of the night, a marching band could be heard playing in the house. One night, George went to investigate and found that the living room furniture had all been moved and the rugs rolled up. He says he woke up in a panic almost every night at 3.15 a.m., believing that that was the time that Ronald DeFeo Jr. walked through the house, killing his family. That's just insomnia. Well, I will just say too, once you've had a nightmare and woken up at a certain time, your body's like, this is a time we wake up anxious now, right? This is good. Yeah. This is good for you. You want to have a little yeah. <laughs> like. Uh, Kathy claimed to dream about Louise DeFeo. She claimed to have three dreams. In one, she dreamed that she was, she like saw her being shot in the head, which she wasn't shot in the head. In another, she says she dreamed where she saw her body being moved from the cemetery with the rest of the family to a different spot by, by her family. And in the third dream, she said she dreamed of her having Louise DeFeo having an affair with a workman. To be fair, if you move into a murder house, you're going to have weird dreams. Yeah. You're probably going to have bad dreams. No ghosts required. You're living in a murder house it, yeah. using their couch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe do some redecorating and then maybe you'll feel better. The youngest child, Missy, uh, George Litch said she had an imaginary or paranormal friend named Jody. Oh, God. Jody would appear as an angel and she had two forms. One was an angel. Any idea what the other form was? I mean, I'm thinking opposite devil. Am I right? It's just a giant pig <laughs> with glowing eyes. My second guess was going to be giant pig. I thought pig. so. That's why yeah. I cut you off. I didn't want you to get it right. <laughs> a giant pig? Jay Anson's book includes a picture that Missy drew of Jody that he says is a drawing of a pig walking through the snow, and they claim that they found gigantic cloven hoof prints in the snow once they went out and there were big. Or maybe it's just a deer. Well, no, no. They were huge. Jody is a really big pig. Okay. 
at one point, Daniel lets his hand gets smashed by a window. So he talks about he opens the windows were opening and closing on their own all the time. It was jammed. He gets it open. And then he says, Christopher, his little brother came in the room and he turned around and he put his hands on the sill. Oh, God. Window slammed on his hands. He says it crushed his hands. He says uh, he he keeps saying skin against skin. Which I think means skin on skin, which I think means it's like flattened his hand. Like all the way to each each skin on the top and the bottom are touching. Like your bone is disintegrated. He was was 10. So when it happened, he says it took four people to get the window off his fingers. I'm imagining now like cartoon, like when they get smashed and then it's just like they're deflated. Yes. Yeah. 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 So he says it took four people to get the window up and then his mom took him downstairs to get ice. And while they were in the kitchen, a spirit walked through the back door, walked through the room, knocked the peanut butter jelly knife off the counter, walked through his hand and then sat down in a chair. And then he says, walked through his hand. Like, yeah, because it was a spirit. Just his hand. Well, no, but you'll see why that's important in a minute because he looked back down at his hand. And they were fine. And they were fine, except he still has a bit pinky. Okay. And so he's like, it was fine, except this pinky. And so I'm like, I couldn't heal your pinky. Right. Okay. Danny also says he was possessed by something at one point. He says he was thrown up the stairs into a wall while Kathy was coming up the stairs behind him. And he says he felt for like he didn't have control of his own body. And the interviewer said, how long did that last? And he said, felt like my whole life. And then he said, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes. He says at this time he heard it say, he heard a scary demon voice say the phrase, it is you. And that really stuck with him. And he says George was also possessed at some point. I love the detail of it felt like my whole life, like 25 minutes. Like that is, yes, that is like how I feel about most things. I mean, that's like it must too. have been. I will also say that Daniel Lutz says repeatedly throughout the documentary that he felt like he had no control in his life. Mm. His life was uprooted. They were moved to this Amityville house with this new stepdad. And then after that, they moved across the country. He was sent to different schools while his parents went on this whole media circus. So it also felt Mm. like very apropos of just how he felt in general. But also, yes, also it's kid time logic, right? Yeah. Like how long were you like that? I don't know, like six, seven minutes, but it felt like a year and a half. Yeah. Christopher Lutz, the little brother, said those creepy eye hole windows at the top of the stairs at the top of the house would open on their own. And he said that that was Ronald DeFeo's old room. In the movie and in this book, they describe this red room that's hidden in the basement behind a wall. In the movie, they it's bricked up. They The dog keeps scratching at it. So I haven't read the book. I've only seen the movie. And they would even say the movie exaggerates. But a lot of this is also in the book, right? So because I'll read you a let's quote in a minute. But it's this room. It's, it's a portal to hell. And Obviously. so Lutz said, I was at work and Kathy called me and said she had just found this room. It was painted red and located behind the bookcase. She was working in the basement Mm-mm. and she was putting things away in the living room and she went to see if this bookcase was movable. I don't know how to describe the space other than as a room. You had to crouch down to get into it. This was under the stairs in the basement and it was painted red. It was hidden behind this book bookcase. It was never shown to us when we saw the house. It's He said the room wasn't on the original house plans. This is what he says. And he says the room had odors coming out of it and they weren't always there. And there was no pipe access for sewers or anything like that. 
it is an old house. We took Harry, who's the dog, down there, and he just wouldn't go in. He backed away. It's the only time I can recall him ever coming cowering from something. This was just one of those discoveries in the first few weeks of being moved in, of moving in. So in the movie, it is a portal to hell. James Brolin falls through the stairs and into a black goo. Oh, um, in the red room, and then the dog has to pull him out. Uh, and it's like glowing, and they have to unbrick it. So we're again Uh, that's how he describes the red room tuck that away we're going to return to the red room a little bit later okay good george lutz and i think this is important too because i think this is an excuse and i'll tell you why in a little while as well but he said he felt like his thoughts were being negatively influenced by basically the vibes this Uh. is not his word but it was essentially he was like you just think things that you would never have thought before like negative things you know kathy did say men got aggressive right danny says on the night that they left he and christopher and this is a quote shared a levitation experience he says they woke up because their footboards were banging into each other and also the ceiling George claims that he could hear it happening above him, but he couldn't get out of bed. And he says Kathy was levitating and he had to grab her and pull her back down. So at this point, George says they actually like got a hold of Father Ray and he convinced them to leave the house for a night. But this is when they flee. They go to Kathy's mother. They never go back. And they claim that whatever was in the house actually followed them to Kathy's mother's house. They says George, they says, they said George and Kathy both levitated at the house. The children had terrible nightmares, which again, you just fled a murder house in the middle of the night. And even their dog seemed plagued, plagued by the unseen force. And again, you're all like on edge. The dog is of course yeah. freaking out. Yeah. And he said he felt it follow him until as a teen, he was in Arizona by himself in the desert alone. So after this, they do a weird thing. They set up a meeting with DeFeo's defense attorney, William Weber. He's back. Okay. And Lutz says this is because there was no doubt in our minds that DeFeo was influenced by what was in that house. And then he says Uh, that Weber told them. So they're saying that the murders, the haunting caused caused him caused the original murder. Why? Okay, I'm really confused by them now. Why would you want to help? Okay. I mean, he's not really. So DeFeo's in prison, but they're like, they're talking to William Weber. And they say William Weber tells them a number of strange stories about the housekeeper for the family and different events that had taken place over the years. Really vague. And then Weber introduces them to a writer named Paul Hoffman, who writes for Good Housekeeping. And he eventually writes an article about the Lutzes that they say was without their permission. So at this point, the story is out there and it's bringing attention to them. So Lutz says that's when they sought out a publisher to share their side of things. That's when they connected with Jay Anson, because now the story was out there. Like they weren't seeking fame. Yeah. But their story was out there. So now they were going to tell their story. I love that. Like the origin, the origin is good housekeeping. Like that's where... (laughs) I was also like, was Good Housekeeping something different in the 70s? Right. (laughs) What? (laughs) Good Housekeeping broke the story? That's weird. That's maybe the weirdest part of the story so far. I did see Anson says that they refused to talk about the night they fled the house because it was too frightening, which is both suspicious and a lame way to end a book. Yeah. A few months after they left, in March of 1976, they brought in a team 
they had also connected with this Channel 5. Uh, they moved to San Francisco. They connect with this Channel 5 investigative reporter named Laura. And she's part of this. They bring in this team that includes Ed and Lorraine Warren. Okay. Who are demonologists. They call themselves demonologists. I don't think there's like a degree in demonology, <laughs> but who am I to say? And so the Conjuring movies are based on them. They are oh. these people who travel around to notable, you know, the Annabelle doll, the Amityville house, other famous haunted houses. And um, there are a whole other story. We'll talk about Lorraine a little bit. She actually showed up in this documentary I watched, but, but uh, I mean, I think they're shysters. I'll play my hand there. But anyway, so they come into the house, they bring their team. They come in with parapsychologist Hans Holzer. And he says, they say the house's history led to it being haunted by evil spirits. Duh. Their experience with Amityville was, uh, however, loosely depicted in The Conjuring too. That's about like the Warren side of things. Oh, okay. Uh, in the movies, they're played by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. So some good acting at least. Lor Lorraine Warren says, Amityville is a case that affected our personal lives more than any case we've ever worked on because it followed us. It followed us right here to our home. It followed us on the road. We had very dangerous things happen to us as a result of the Amityville case, which is an impressive general statement, isn't it? George Lutz yeah. says the consensus of opinion from the experts was that whatever it is there never walked the face of the earth in human form. They said they could not cleanse the house. They could not fix it. And that the house, if the house was to be fixed, it would require an Anglican or Roman Catholic priest to come and say mass there. Not a normal priest. Okay. A priest reserved for situations like this. Okay. Mostly sequestered. He would have to fast before he went in. And in no uncertain terms, his life would be put in jeopardy by trying to cast out what was there. He says there, he says also something that gets left out is that there wasn't just one entity. There were many entities. Okay. Um, he said someone else with a different psychological makeup or nature might not experience anything there. The house found certain people interesting and others not. And that might be important later when all the previous owners tell you what they did or didn't experience in the house for George to say, well, it doesn't affect everyone. It picks that's, who it likes. That's very, that's covering all your tracks, isn't it? It sure is. Yeah. Uh, he said it liked being fed by people. It liked having people come over to choose from and play with. There were people involved oh. trying to help us from a distance affected by this. The only people we know of that still live in the same places they did then is the Warrens. No one else. People move, but. So in the documentary, Danny and Laura, this investigative reporter, they go to see Lorraine Warren because she met them as a kid when he was a kid. Uh, she says that she and Ed took the, the kids for a walk on the beach and the kids told them all kinds of stuff. And I just have to say that I don't think in 1976 that Ed and Lorraine Warren probably understood how to ask children about their experience without heavily leading them. Yeah. And putting in place on purpose or on accident, positive reinforcement for saying what you're hoping to hear. I just yeah. don't feel like they had the the necessary training to take them for that walk on the beach. Yeah. It was 2012. Lorraine Warren died in 2019. And in 2012, in this documentary, she is this tiny little old lady. She looks like anyone's grandma. She has, she's still overlining her eyes and she's wearing her hair in the same way she did in the seventies. And she has two roosters in her house. In cages? Like no. Oh. 
Oh. And so she looks like your grandma. And then we walk through her house and she is like a hoarder of paranormal paraphernalia. It's oh my God. the weirdest place. I love it. And she is the weirdest lady. Do you think she like believes her own shit or is she like, is this all like, she, maybe she's like interested in it, but she's like putting on a show. I don't know. I think self-deception is pretty powerful and I think it's possible she has convinced herself of some of these things. And that's kind of the most ch- charitable view because otherwise I have to think that she's just manipulating and fooling frightened people. Right. So I don't know. Okay. Laura asks Lorraine if George attracted the evil. Did he attract the evil in the house? And Lorraine said, maybe. She said... You had to it's not even a yes or no. Maybe she said it's a possibility. And she said you had to pad yourself to interact with George. He was a hard individual. Okay. Then, so in 1976, when they're at the house, Glenn Campbell is a cameraman on Ed Lorraine Warren's team. And he sets up a camera to shoot black and white infrared all night. And they take, they do numerous rolls of film. And there's one picture that has something on it. It's the Amityville ghost picture. I'm going to send it to you in just a second. It shows a figure with white eyes peering out of a doorway. Some people think it's a demon. Some people think it's the youngest DeFeo boy, the ghost of the Mm. youngest DeFeo boy. And so in 1979, no one has seen this picture at this point. It was taken in 1976. George Lutz goes on the Merv Griffin show and shares the Amityville ghost picture with the world with audience. It's very creepy. So that's another thing they experienced in another documentary series. I didn't watch this one, but I saw some pieces of it. It's called Amityville and origin story. Christopher, the middle kid says that the book and the movie leave out the key detail that George was already before they moved into the house, dabbling in the occult. Oh, he thinks George intentionally opened the doorway to the paranormal and then leveraged it to make a lot of money. He says, interestingly, that George misused transcendental meditation to cause that to happen, which it was the 70s. So like everyone was using transcendental meditation. Danny also said he found some disturbing books on George's book case about you know, satanic Bible, demonic stuff, the occult. He says George was mastering telekinesis. Okay. That he was mastering how to control objects and other people's minds already before they moved into the house. He says one night, and so he agrees with his brother to some extent that George's involvement in the occult was the catalyst to everything that happened. He says one night he stumbled upon George doing telekinesis with other people. It was like group telekinesis. I got to say, you know, every other resolution i've made goal i've made feels much more attainable now that i compare it to working on telekinesis yeah yeah (laughs) he says he like went to tell his mom and by the time they got back in there it was done um you know maybe there weren't ghosts maybe george was just really good at telekinesis like all of these things could be explained by moving stuff with your mind maybe You know, maybe they had those books. Let's consider you're 10 years old and you don't like your stepfather. And he does Mm -hmm. have those books on his bookshelf. And he says to you at one point, I am learning how to control minds and objects. I'd be like, oh shit. 
and you walk into the barn and see him doing something else at some point, maybe not even something nefarious. And as an adult, that suggestion of what he says and the pieces of memory you have turn into you actually watching him move stuff with his hand with his hands. He could definitely move stuff with his hands. What if he was just mind. like wanted to be a, mu- a magician and he's like, I'm practice. I'm getting good at telekinesis. But really, he's just a shitty magician I, I just that actually makes george sound like too nice so we're not okay. gonna give him the benefit of the doubt okay so those are some of the paranormal things we're gonna backtrack and look at those but i've just listed a bunch of things what are your thoughts and feelings i'm not i think it's really weird that like i thought we were gonna start this and it's gonna be like oh the the dead people are gonna haunt this house it's very strange that it's we're automatically jumping to demons yeah you know that has nothing to do and that's like that's why he why he killed killed them yeah yeah anson in his book claims that the house is on top of a native american burial ground not a burial ground kind of a burial ground an asylum where this tribe would send their sick and mentally ill people out there and like abandon them to die Oh, no. And so it was built on that. And so there's all this unrest. So that's where part that's part of why they're jumping to that and saying that. Okay. I mean, can't we claim that for all of the United States? Hello. No, specifically, they were sending their people there to die. Maybe we all just have a little bit of guilt that we need to deal with, guys. What really happened? Well, are you going to tell me? Who knows? (laughs) But I will say, let's talk about the fact that the story shifted a lot, a lot of the time. So first, we're actually going to go all the way back to DeFeo uh, because there has been that attempt to connect his murder to the haunting. But this guy has said a lot of things. In a 2002 primetime live interview that he gave from prison, he recanted his testimony about hearing voices. He said that wasn't true. He said his parents were abusive and that he committed the murders drunk and high on heroin. So that was, um, and actually as early as 1986, he was already distancing himself heavily from the supernatural claims. Okay. The relationship with his dad was fraught. His dad does seem to have been a violent guy, but even so the motive is pretty unclear. It's possible it was life insurance. Because as far as killing the whole family. After the murder, he gave a couple different really weird accounts of what happened, which felt to me like confessor's remorse. He was sorry he confessed to slaughtering his family. Mm -hmm. So in 1986, he gave this interview and he claimed that his sister, Dawn, the 18-year-old, killed their dad in the middle of a fight. And then their mom was distraught. So she killed all the siblings. And then he like walked in and he killed only mom. But in fact, she had actually already shot herself. He just shot her again. And this is interesting because the parents did each have two bullets in them. The kids all had one. So whatever. Hmm. He said he took the blame for all of the murders because he was scared that his mom's dad, who was the source of tension in the marriage between the DeFeos. Like he was always at the house. He had loaned money to Ronald Sr. He was super attached to his daughter. And so Ron Jr., Ronnie Butch, was worried that if he said that his mom had killed the kids, that his grandpa or his dad's brother, who had ties to a crime family, would kill him. He also, at this point, says he was, at the time, married to a woman named Geraldine Gates, And that the two of them were living in New Jersey. 
And so the reason he was in the house is his mom called him to break up a fight between his sister, Dawn, and the dad. And so he and Geraldine's brother, Richard Romando, drove down together to fix it. And he was like, Richard was with me. He can verify all of this. Okay. In 1990, he filed a motion to dismiss his case. And this time, what happened is Dawn and an unknown assailant who fled the house before uh, Ronnie could get a good look at him, kill their parents, and then Dawn kills all their siblings. And then the only person he killed was Dawn. And it was an accident. They were fighting over the rifle. Why? Why? Why were they fighting over the rifle? Because she had just killed all his siblings and was going to kill him. Oh, okay. This seems very convenient. Well, especially because all of the evidence, there's no evidence on her body of any kind of physical altercation. There was like some unburned gunpowder on her nightgown, but that can happen by a close range shooting. It doesn't indicate that she shot the gun. And now I'm remembering they were all like arms up in their bed, right? That That's right. That doesn't make sense, my guy. That's right. They do at this point produce an affidavit from her mysterious, from Geraldine's mysterious brother, Richard Romando, that says, yes, this is true, but he was unable to be located to testify. So then evidence was then submitted to the court that suggested that this brother didn't exist at all. They fabricated this brother and in fact that geraldine gates his wife was at the time married to someone else during the murder she didn't testify at the hearing because the authorities had already confronted her about the false claims and secured a statement under oath where she admitted that her brother was fictitious and that she did not actually marry defeo until 1989 in anticipation of filing this motion Also, this whole story is in opposition to a lot of the testimony he gave at trial about the fact that he lived at home. He worked for his dad, all these things. He's really backtracking. So uh, that all seems false, but it is also notable that he is not interested even in trying to get out of prison and pursuing this like supernatural. That's like so far on the bottom of the list, right? Yeah. DeFeo also said that his lawyer forced him into an insanity defense. Remember William Weber? DeFeo claims, William Weber gave me no choice. He told me I had to do this. He told me there would be a lot of money from book rights and a movie. He would have me out in a couple of years and I would come into all that money. Wow. We're going to talk more about Weber and the story doesn't feel unbelievable. However, Ronnie DeFeo is clearly not a reliable source. So I'm also reticent to be like, because at that moment, he was trying to get his verdict, verdict overturned based on ineffective counsel. So... On the one hand, it's consistent with some of the other things that Weber does. But on the other hand, we have no reason to believe that he's telling the truth about anything, especially right. when he's trying to convince them that his lawyer did a bad job. Right. So we're going to step away from Ronald DeFeo now, but I just, uh, messy, messy, messy. So, okay. How about Father Ralph Pecoraro? Here's what's interesting. He actually stated in an affidavit during a lawsuit in the late 1970s that his only contact with the Lutz concerning the matter had been by the telephone. So in that signed affidavit, he mm. said he never went to the house. Other accounts say he went to the house, but not experienced nothing unusual there. That interview that came out where he said the voice told him to get out came out a few months after the movie, which is very uh, similar to what he describes on the phone call. Damn it. 
there have also been just throughout the years, a ton of inconsistencies, both with what he said and what other people have said about him, like where he works now, whether he went to the house at all. George Lutz once said when asked whether he recognized the last name, he said, Newsday says a lot of things. As far as we're concerned, he's Father Mancuso, which is the fake name they used for the book. Definitely not his real name. (laughs) There were a number of priests involved who will never be told about. Also a rabbi. It'll never be told unless... I find a publisher for a follow-up book full of detailed proofs. So just the fact that George is dangling facts to sell another book. Wow. We're going to keep talking about all the inconsistencies, but also at one point, George George Lutz said, the reason the story is inconsistent is shows you it's true. Because if it, if we had made it up, we would have gotten our story straight, which is just really convenient. Like that's a no win situation. If your story is really consistent, you'll be like, of course, that means it's true. But now he's like, no, no, the inconsistencies tell the truth. Can you imagine, can you imagine like building a case, like as a detective, they're like, the more inconsistencies, the more that this is real. Like, have you, what? (laughs) I love, I love that idea. They're like, yeah, our witness statements don't align. And that's how we know they're telling the truth. They've changed their story five times. They're credible. That's how we know. Yeah, it was really good. So the red room, that portal to hell. This is actually something. This is actually one of the details my dad remembered because it's just kind of silly. There, At one point, there was a television show that went into the house that showed it's actually just a closet under the stairs in the basement. And it's half painted red. And they sort of pretended it was like a hidden room full of blood. It's not even hidden. It's right. You come down the basement stairs and there's a closet right there. It's not behind anything. Okay. Uh, It's just a storage space under the stairs. So in this episode of That's Incredible, a friend, a former friend of the DeFeos actually came to the house and was like, yes, it's right there. That's actually where they used to store toys. So this whole thing about like she discovered it, it wasn't on the original plans. We didn't know it was there is really, come on. Wow. So it's like a Harry Potter closet with one red painted wall. Yeah. It wasn't even one whole wall. It's like someone started and just kind of like got lazy. And they're like, this isn't going to work. I had an idea. I had a vision. Let's try red. Not working. I thought this one little sample can of red paint would be enough and it's not. So. (laughs) And Um, then they never went back for the right shade again. The only thing about that room was haunted with was like the ghosts of unfinished projects. So I do have this, the source for this is purely my dad's memories. I didn't see it anywhere, but it does make sense, which is that the parents originally weren't saying anything weird was happening. It was the kids said weird stuff was happening. And Mm. then they changed their story. Mom and dad changed their story. So how about that creepy picture I sent you? I don't have like a explanation for the picture, but there are some people who say it's probably one of the investigators. Black and white infrared is going to make you look weird. In fact, they particularly said it might be a man named Paul Bartz. Hold on. They think this is a man? Well, if he's like leaning out of the... It definitely looks like a kid, but the infrared is just so weird. Uh, I don't know. That's a weird one. Okay. So just the one ghost. The people who bought the house after Jim and Barbara Cromerty. So remember that one of the big things is that they said the door was blown off from inside and they said a bunch of the the windows shattered. And so Jim and Barbara said there was no damage to doors and windows. They had let a camera crew inside the home to show that those upstairs eye windows had never shattered. 
And in fact, you could still see the paint and putty from when the house was built in 1927. Like those windows have never been replaced. Okay. Similarly, total lie. Yeah. Similarly, there's never been any evidence the door blew outward. And even Christopher Lutz said the door never blew outward. At least like make believe a little bit, like try, you know, if you're going to say the windows have been blown out, be like a crazy psycho and just go around your house and just like knock all the windows out. Like give me something. I agree. Commit to the bit. Thank you. Try just a little bit. They sometimes claimed they called the police. There's no police reports. There's no neighbor complaints. A police officer was interviewed for a Washington Post article in 1979 and he said, what would you do if your doors were ripped off and your windows broke and $1,500 mysteriously disappeared? You'd call the police, right? The Lutzes never contacted the police until after they moved out. They're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. We got to make sure we've told them about the creepy stuff. After we're gone. We didn't, yeah. When that happened, the night the door blew off, no big deal. Yeah. Every time they released a new edition of the book, the details were a little bit different. Oh, my God. Remember the cloven hoof prints? Yeah. A couple of researchers have said there was no snow on the ground during that time period. I love that. Jay Anson was like, so I got some details wrong. So sue me. I don't know what the weather was like. I'm like, the more inconsistent, the more real. We've already decided this. This doesn't prove anything, but I thought it was interesting. So James Brolin and Margot Kidder played George and Kathleen in the movie. And they didn't believe the story. They said, so Brolin later said, George is a good salesman, you know, a charmer. You had to believe him. I mean, his story, the way he'd tell it was great, but he was such a good salesman. You realize he could be selling you sand. So there was a lot of doubt there. And when you would talk to the family and the kids and I would ask them questions, they would not go, well, um, they'd have the answer right now. Like they'd been schooled. Mm. And that was my take. I walked away going, I don't know. I don't believe in all this stuff, but why am I not sure? And Margot Kidder said, I didn't buy that this really had happened. I was actually quite naughty and not fully committing to the notion that this was all true. I really should have had I been doing my work in a more serious vein, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> She's like, if I was a better actress, I would have believed this story. So again, that's not proof. But right. um, like I said, the book claims the house is built on a kind of Native American asylum where the Shinnecock tribe members would abandon the mentally ill and dying. This has been roundly denied by the tribe, obviously. And in fact, that tribe didn't even live in Amityville. That's that's like a complete fabrication. Even that's a lie. Yeah. Anson <sighs> said there were other tribes there, but it wouldn't have been this tribe. But Anson said in 1979, which was one year before he died at 58, he said, I wrote down what they told me happened. And I believe that they believe what they told me. Do I believe my own book? I neither believe it nor disbelieve it. Does no one have any, like, morals? I don't know. Uh, This is, a interestingly enough, this is also a very litigious situation. There are so many lawsuits around this. In that 1979 article in the Washington Post, an executive at Bantam Book, which was one of the printers, said, quote, half the Western world is getting sued. That gives you a picture of all the lawsuits that were flying around. Oh, my gosh. So in May 1977, George and Kathy Lutz file a lawsuit against William Weber and Paul Hoffman, who was the writer who wrote the Good Housekeeping articles. They also file against Bernard Burton and Frederick Mars, who were both alleged clairvoyants who had examined the house. They file against Good Housekeeping Magazine, New York Sunday News, and the Hearst Corporation. So they're like filing against everyone related to these Good Housekeeping articles. They say 
They're alleging misappropriation of names for trade purposes, invasion of privacy, and mental distress. Um, the claims against the news corporations were dropped, and the remainder of the lawsuits went to court to Judge Jack V. Weinstein. And then he he ends up dismissing the Lutz's claims. He says he's not going to. But William Weber countersues that the Lutz's are in breach of contract, and the judge allows that suit. So Weber had sent them a contract. When he met them, when they get in touch with him to supposedly find out what what nonsense, you know, what demons were haunting DeFeo. He's already working on a book about the DeFeo murders. Oh my God. Uh... They get in touch with him. They work, they learn stories from him. And then he sends them this contract to like work together. And so remember how they were like, our story got outed and we went with Anson because we wanted to tell our own story. They end up going with Anson instead of Weber because it's a better deal for them financially, which fine, you should choose the best deal, but let's not pretend, right? So then Hoffman writes a couple of articles anyway. In the September 17th, 1979 issue of People, William Weber writes, I know this book is a hoax. We created this story over many bottles of wine. This refers to a meeting Weber had with George and Kathy Lutch, during which they discussed what became what became the outline of Anson's book. He says they snapped up details about the DeFeo killings from him. Like he would tell them about something that happened and then a form of that would appear in their haunting. He also said in 1979 in an AP interview that he was with Kathy talking with her when she came up with the idea of dreaming about Louise DeFeo. I will say William Weber was in a lawsuit. They were he was suing the defa- the Lutzes, so certainly he had reason to discredit them. I recognize he's not unbiased, but when you add the other sources of confusion and inconsistencies, it makes sense, right? The judge said, based on what I have heard, it appears to me that a large extent, to a large extent, the book is a work of fiction relying in a large part upon suggestion of Mr. Weber. He also saw ethical issues with Mr. Weber. None of the adults in this story are great. I will just say, mm-hmm. I'm not like, yeah, William Weber. I mean, he was writing this book about the DeFeos. It feels gross, right? And then, yeah. so, so there's all that. I have a couple, couple other things, but I think that's pretty interesting. Because even if, I don't know, sure, he's, tr- maybe he's trying to discredit them. I don't feel like it makes him look that great to admit that he was like taking part in this hoax, right? No. Definitely not. So this is kind of a bummer, but I do want to talk a little bit too about the family relationship. Uh, There's kind of this Hollywood tendency in the film to paint them as this wholesome family who are victims of the haunting. Is there some dirty laundry we need to air out? George Lutz was abusive. There was a lot of dysfunction. Yeah. There was dysfunction even before George entered the picture with the fact that Danny talks about, again, this is all from Danny's perspective, but I don't have any reason not to... You know, I'm I'm not discrediting him either. I just, to be fair, one, but he says that when his parents got divorced, he then took on a lot of responsibility. He's eight or nine at this point. He mm-hmm. was, became like responsible for his younger siblings. There was a pretty immediate sort of parentification of him, even before Jordan enters the picture. Yeah. Someone in the documentary asked Danny if his mom ever protected him from George. And he was basically like, no, she wouldn't have. I should have. It was my job to protect her from him, not even from violence, but just like in his right. mind, it, that was yeah. his role. Yikes. 
another thing that struck me was Danny talked about knowing something was wrong with the house because his mom used to tell him everything and she stopped telling him everything. And again, it's very inappropriate for a 10 year old to expect for mom to always tell you what's wrong. Right. There's like, there's some clear dysfunction there. Um, George said part of the haunting at one point, he and Kathy took wooden spoons and beat the kids and then ordered them around like drill sergeants. And so Laura in the film asked Danny if that was true. And Danny kind of laughs and says that happened many times before Amityville Um, and after unrelated from the house. And that would like make more sense with, you know, if they are being coached on what to say, if you're being abused by, you know, that would. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It seems like George was trying to excuse his, he said, Danny said they always had to call him sir. Even after that whole, like he adopted them. He was their stepfather. They didn't call him George. They called him sir or Mr. Lutz. Like casual. Um, So even going back to that thing where George talks about it, changing his thoughts and his mood, big excuse, big justification, right? Being a piece of waving away of, you know, some aggressive behavior with a malevolent haunting. George clearly resented, Danny clearly resented George, who seems obviously abusive to the kids. Things were in fact so bad in the house that Danny left home at a very young age. He says at one point, 13 and a half. He says at another point, 15. Um, He also says that between 13 and 15, he ran away eight times for a total of two years. There's a lot there. But he says when he, like he left for good at 16, but he said at one point he told his mom he had to go before someone got hurt. He says he also tried to kill George. So I think there was like a lot of tension there but her response was essentially she washed his socks and packed him sandwiches like she kind of um Danny also said George couldn't be more proud of being the Amity guy which there is kind of this George is really interesting because there's kind of this narrative where he likes to talk about how the press chased them across the country and harassed them and their story was put out without their knowledge but then he's also so available yeah and, and so there's like some real, real tension there. Also, so remember the kids were five, seven, and nine. And Kathy told them the day they moved in that people had been murdered in the house. And they oh. came up to the house and she like leaned into the car and was like, some people were murdered here. Do you think you'll be fine? I actually can't figure out why she told them at all. Maybe she was yeah. afraid that they would hear it from someone in the neighborhood yeah. in a worse, you know, she wanted them to just know. But if you had been told that the day you moved in, if you were already in a, ho- a family that had an unsettled, dysfunctional energy, George, you know, Danny said George had no parent skills. He was unequipped to parent. And so as an adult, and then, and then you are told by your parents and by the entire world that these things happen to you. Mm-hmm. So much of our memories as an adult of being a young child are the things people told us, right? Things you see in pictures, things our parents told us, things our family members told us, and we kind of are filling in the gaps. And so I think it would be so easy to contextualize the period of abuse and trauma and then take all those, and then just the general like nebulous memories of children anyway. And as an adult, think you had seen some of those things that you saw like in the movie when you were still a kid and people were like, that happened to us. It's, it doesn't, feel that shocking that they would have those memories based on the context yeah or even if you're like someone is murdered in here welcome home everything now is going to have a creepy undertone 
Yes. And Danny actually says it was interesting to me. He says the more dysfunctional things in the family got, the worse things got, the more anger, the more malevolence. And so even there, it kind of feels like, you know, I'm not equipped to psychoanalyze, but I can even see as you're an adult looking back that the, the worse things got with your family, the more those memories feel like come in. Yeah. Daniel mentioned several times that his life had no control. I told you that. And this experience tracks with that as well. It would feel like part of that. How much more out of control can you get than being haunted? Yeah. Oh, God. Can we remake this movie like with this new perspective? Because this is way more interesting to me. <laughs> they remade it in 2005 with Ryan Reynolds. Um, they after- did? Yeah. <laughs> after- Should I go watch those today? No. <laughs> Uh, also interesting after Amityville with the notoriety, the parents went on a, like a year long press tour. They left the kids to go on a year long press tour. I mean, that says it all. I so don't... There was obviously just a lot of real evil and trauma present. And I hate to see that get lost in a ghost story. I guess it's like this idea of yeah. evil, big evil hides and obscures the evil that was actually the real that is evil. not small. That made it sound like, but you know, this sort of like big spooky evil. Yeah. So. Right, you're using like demons to hide the demon that is George. Um, a couple other things. Yeah, and I don't think Kathy was any prize either, frankly. No, but the Cromerties who moved in after the Lutzes and before the book came out, they also actually sued the Lutzes, Anson, and the publisher because the notoriety made their lives kind of hellish. People just were coming to the house. Oh my god, can you imagine? Um, That's like a fucking nightmare. <laughs> they said. They never experienced anything supernatural. Jim Cromerty's mother, Jim Cromerty's mother reportedly said, quote, it's a lovely house and things don't come flying out the wall. <laughs> no other owners of the Amityville Ocean Avenue house have reported any supernatural events. Uh, I read a quote that said each member of the real Let's family, except for Missy, who doesn't give interviews, has at some point contradicted one or more of the other family members. They have also, on one or more occasions, attempted to profit from their own take on the real Amityville house haunting. George Lutz, in fact, trademarked the Amityville horror when he was alive. Shut up. Lutz said both movies exaggerated. He was quite displeased with the remake in 2005 because it didn't involve the family and used his name without permission. George Lutz maintained until he died that the events in the book were mostly true. The Lutzes had two daughters together before divorcing in the late 80s. They remained close until Kathy's death in 2004 and George died in 2006. There's nothing spooky or untoward about either death. Ronald DeFeo died in prison at 69 on March, at the age of 69, on March 12th, 2021. The address of the house has actually been changed. So it was 112 oh. Ocean Avenue. It's now 108 Ocean Avenue to keep people from showing up. Amityville but residents. Now I can show up. Yeah, I don't I don't totally understand. <laughs> we changed the address. Here's the new one, but don't show up. Well, Amityville residents are not surprisingly not excited about this particular attention source, and they're not keen to discuss it. It's not in like, believe it or not, the DeFeo murders and the Amityville haunting are not in any of the historical documentation for the house. In August 2010, the house was sold. It was sold. It was listed for $1.5 million and sold to a local resident for $950,000. This was 13 years ago. So you're still not really getting that murder discount. That only lasts a certain amount of years, I guess. I guess so, yeah. 
the departing owner on August 21st, the departing owner held a moving sale at the house and hundreds of people turned up for the event. Oh, I would turn up so hard for that. Oh my God. They were allowed to go inside the house, but they were not allowed to go upstairs or in the basement. So ground floor only. Damn it. Jim, the red room. And with a quote from Jim and Barbara, Jim said, this Jim bought the house in 1977. So again, shortly after they moved out, he lived there with his wife, Barbara, for 10 years. And he said, nothing weird ever happened except for people coming by because of the book and the movie. So how are you? Do we need to be? I remain skeptic. But undeniably, the victims here are the DeFeos and the Lutz children. There are tragic, tragic stories in this spooky story with mm-hmm. just, you know, the the terrors of the real world. Yeah. And if there were demonic forces at work, they did a great job of obscuring the evil that was actually taking places place in the house, right? Making excuses. So wow. that's the Amityville horror. Once again, what you're what we really need to be afraid of are the people that we love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm taking away. Yes. <laughs> wow. So. wow. What's making you anxious? I'm going to do a little one this week because I've been doing big ones. Um, Just a little one. I, for, so I've been in this apartment for like a little over a year now. And there's like a gym. But like the anxiety that I have crafted around like figuring out where the door is. What if there are people in there? What if I don't know how to turn on the machine? All that stupid shit. Yeah. So I haven't, I just went, it took me like a year. <laughs> I was like, I'm doing it. I love it. That I'm gonna, it. Not that it took you a no year. No one was in there. Everything was fine. And I was like, you're so, but that's what I do. Like anytime like new things, go and do a new post office. Oh, don't oh, even totally. get me started. I just, I'm like, I'm going to look stupid. Everyone's going to look at me and it's like, you're fine. Totally. So that's mine. What's did yours? You, did you ever use oh. the downtown post office in Mankato? It was, a, yeah, I didn't like it. It was the worst post office. It was so slow every time. There was another one in North Mankato. And eventually I switched oh. to the post office. But just that idea of like finding a new place and doing it. I went to the bad post office way more times than I needed to. So there you go. That's my, um, yeah. for me, I guess just like. This week, my brain just kind of has been stuck on a couple of hard situations, really perseverating on things in my life. And so it's, you know, there's a real difference between like not like processing something and thinking through it in a healthy way and your brain just really getting stuck on that and replaying it Mm -hmm. and like re-traumatizing you with it over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. (laughs) Um, it especially happens at night, which is not great. I have to really intentionally be like, I'm not going to think about this and like tell yeah. a story so that I can, yeah. as I'm falling asleep, Focus I won't on something fall else. asleep. And it's just especially tricky. There's just, because I work from home and live alone, there's a lot of, pos- uh, a lot of opportunities to just get too stuck in my own head, to not interact with other people, to really like spiral in that. And so this week was just like a little heavy in that. So... But I do that a lot. Please yeah. tell me what's bringing you joy. Well, we mentioned it last. I'll give you a couple. We mentioned it last week, but today I'm going to see Jared Freed and his new stand-up special. I did steal your. I 
pre-stole your joy thunder That's last okay. week. We can get excited multiple times, <laughs> Woo! but yes. kind of hoping that he's going to make me laugh so much that I cry. I think he can do it. We'll see. I'll get back to you. Good. And then just like a lot of, you know, I, I made a note in my notes app of like Halloween episodes of all, like all the shows. So fun. All the shows that I watched and now I'm like, I'm just having fun with Halloween That's stuff. That's so fun. And... I just, like, I might go watch that shitty Ryan Reynolds movie. Like, you don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. I mean, you can watch the original, too. Then we can have watched the same movie. The original's a little bit longer, but still just, like, two hours. They're both on Max, so go here. Okay. I can go crazy. Yeah. Might watch Jennifer's Body again. You know, just, like, got to go through the classics of, like, what do I watch over spooky season? So, Very fun. Good. What what about you? Yeah, it's a song uh called Bubble of My Gum by Dury. It's just they're a brother sister indie rock duo out of Minnesota. My sister shared the song with me. It's just a delight. It's super fun. It just makes me happy every time I listen to it. And then I downloaded their recent album, which is called Suburban Legend, and I loved it. It was great. So I've been enjoying okay. that this week. And then also yesterday I was at my favorite local coffee shop. And I stayed long enough. I went up to get another drink and he was like, Oh, second drink. That's half off. I was like, what? and that's like any drink. Yeah. I that's was like, what do you like? Thank you for, you know, just a little, thank you for sitting and hanging out. And I was like, I love you guys have a great space here. It's super inviting. And yeah. So I love that spot. They have really struck the right balance of being super warm and friendly. And also you can sit down and get work done. They're not going to invade on your space. They don't make you feel weird about it. They don't invade. They come by occasionally and are like, you doing good? Do you need a little more water? But like the perfect amount. Wow. And it's just, it's the, like when you, I feel like it's like the platonic ideal of the coffee shop where you want to go get work done. When you imagine it, you're like, that's the one. So half off drink. It was delicious. That's a good deal. Great. And the first latte I had was only $5. And I was like, someone should tell them this is an $8 latte. I don't, I'm worried about them. No, no one tell them. Keep that secret. I just don't want them to go out of business. Sure. They're selling their lattes. I just think we need to tell other coffee shops. They're still in business and their latte was only five bucks. So we're on to you. Anyway. So yeah. I love it. Good music, good coffee. Can't wait to listen to that later. All right. The world can be a scary place. Don't forget to take a deep breath. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore anxiety pod. We'll talk to you next week.